0: Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California. Streaming online at kuci.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's the author of several books, including Negotiations, Breakthroughs, and Fighting for Love. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel, and she mediates business, employment, divorce, privacy, and other civil cases in her private practice in Laguna Niguel, California. Mari's is a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. She teaches leadership and conflict management courses at Brandman University and here at UCI, and she trains corporate leaders' powerful communication and conflict transformation skills. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning?
1: Well, Lloyd, today our show is about enlightenment And from the studies that that I've been reading about, when we do reach enlightenment, it is that love, love of everything, just really an understanding of the whole meaning of the universe in that enlightened moment. But we're going to find out more about that. I have a wonderful repeat guest, and that is... uh, Mark Robert Waldman, and we had him on before when he we talked about his book, Words Can Change Your Brain, Conversation Strategies to Build Trust, Resolve Conflict, and Increase Intimacy. That was wonderful. And then I just got this new book that's just out this month, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And it's the new science of transformation. So this is pretty exciting. It's again by Andrew new- Newberg and Mark Waldman. And let me tell you just briefly about Mark. But he is wonderful. Mark has authored fourteen books. His newest book, which is again with Andy Newberg, who he's taught, who's with, uh, he's written with before. It's How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And he teaches at Loyola Marymount University. And he is a world-leading expert on spirituality, communications, consciousness, and the brain. And he has a column with Andy every month in Science of Mind magazine. And you can actually go on and see him. Um, on YouTube at, when he did a TEDx, and he's just all over the place, and I think he's wonderful. I am just really, um, he's a, a guru for me since I use what he says in my life and in my practice. And, Mark, thank you so much for coming on our show again. You are just wonderful.
2: Wonderful. <laughs> Oh, it's a pleasure, and I love the fact that you said, I'm all over the place, because that's how I feel most of the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you and I were talking before the show started about enlightenment, since that's something that many of us would like to, to be enlightened. How do you even define or describe enlightenment?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. And so what I would like you to do and all of our listeners to do is a little experiment. I would like everyone to just close their eyes for a moment and yawn and stretch and relax a little bit. And I want you to pay attention to the first word that comes into your mind. If you were to ask yourself, what does enlightenment mean to me? Tell me.
1: Connection. What's the f-
2: what was the word? Connection. Connection. Now we have found that almost everybody we've surveyed comes up with a different word. Hmm. People will come up with light, peace, unity. One of my favorite words is transformation. Hmm. But the one word that nobody came up with was illumination. And that's the word that's been used throughout history to describe what enlightenment is. To come out of the darkness of ignorance, and into the light, where you can see reality for what it really is.
1: Well, that makes sense, because enlightened, to become enlightened, is to become illuminated. That makes a lot of sense to me.
2: Right. And then we ask everyone to think about people who they consider to be enlightened. So who Mm. comes to mind for you?
1: Well, a lot of the great masters, like Jesus... I'm sure he was enlightened. Buddha, those who were really um, at one with spirit, I think, are are people, they come to mind for me. Mother Teresa, maybe. Uh, Yeah.
2: Now, what about people who made discoveries and changed the entire world? Like, would you consider Descartes to be enlightened?
1: Uh, Yes, I would. And Leonardo da Vinci would be enlightened.
2: How about Steve Jobs?
1: Probably, yeah.
2: (laughs) I don't think anybody around Steve Jobs would consider him to be enlightened. But the inventions that he came up with, one could certainly say, was enlightening. So what we find when you look through the history of enlightenment is that there's an Eastern and a Western perspective. And what we tried to do in our book was to call the Eastern forms of enlightenment, we call it the Big E experience. That's where you have that kind of, oh, wow, where your whole world transforms in a moment. It's where all of your old belief systems fall away and you can never go back because everything suddenly seems different. Mm-hmm. But people like Jefferson and people like Descartes and Spinoza, they were the leaders of what was called the Age of Enlightenment back in the 1700s and 1800s. Mm-hmm. And this was also called the Age of Reason, In this form of enlightenment, science was replacing spirituality and superstition. We were looking for insights, aha experiences that helped build a better understanding of the world we're living in in the present moment. So what our research shows is that there's two kinds of enlightenment experiences. Mm-hmm. There's that aha moment that you have, kind of like, you know, maybe like when I was a teenager and, it was, and I discovered what it was really like to be hugged and kissed or appreciated by another person. And I just mm. went, aha, all my old thoughts and beliefs fell away in that moment. Mm. It didn't change my life substantially, but our research suggests That the more you accumulate small aha experiences, the more likely you are to have that big oh wow experience, that big E experience that you oftentimes read about in sacred texts.
1: Mm. Hmm. So how did you get into the research of enlightenment from where you were before in terms of, you know, words can change your brain and how the brain goes? How did you get to decide to do it, uh, the research on enlightenment?
2: We had done quite a number of studies on Buddhists and nuns and different forms of contemplative practices. And all of these types of very gentle forms of deep meditation or mindfulness practices, they did something kind of wonderful for the brain. They helped lower stress and anxiety. They helped a person to feel more calm and clear. And many times it stimulated parts of the brain that made you feel loving kindness towards yourself and others, you know, Mm -hmm. more trust and more generosity. Mm -hmm. But then we began to, I think the first people that we were looking at where something very different happens are the Pentecostals, when they start to speak in tongues. Now, imagine yourself just dancing to gospel music and losing yourself in that dance experience. In that moment, that's kind of a similar quality of other enlightenment experiences because you can just lose yourself in the moment and the experience. Mm -hmm. But in the Pentecostal tradition, you're doing that specifically to let the Holy Spirit move through you, and so they start to speak in tongues. We discovered from that study that a very different type of neurological activity takes place. Frontal lobe activity drops instead of raises. And then we began to bring in Sufis. Uh, this is the mystical branch of Islam. And they do a really powerful meditation where they start to say a particular word like Allah, 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 Allah. And they start chanting it faster and faster and faster. But they also start rocking and swaying their body in rhythm to this. So they're creating this very intense ritual. And with this deeper breathing... This is a faster way to lose your everyday form of consciousness. You enter these states that feel almost psychedelic, and in those states, you're more likely to have huge shifts of awareness and perhaps huge insights, but only if you ask for it. So what we discovered is that if you went back and forth between gentle forms of meditation, for example, you take a word that has deep value for you, like peace or compassion or love, Mm -hmm. if you keep repeating that word over and over and over, activity goes up in your frontal lobes, you begin to feel more peaceful, you really feel that sense, and that sense of you is coming from another part of your brain called your parietal lobe. So everything's going up, and you're increasing activity in the brain. But then if you were to suddenly shift into doing some type of powerful chant or powerful movement, like you can take any word right now, for example, if you and your listeners want to, try this. Take a really deep breath in and go, ah, on exhalation. And then you keep on doing, "Ah, ah, 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 ah. Now I want you to do one other thing. As you're doing that, start to rock your body, your upper body, forward and backwards, forward and backwards. Ah, ah, ah. ah, ah.
1: I'm gonna faint. Ah.
2: Yes, actually, you're not going to faint. What's happening is that your frontal lobes. Okay, now slow down and now okay. yawn and relax. Come back gently to everyday rea- reality. When you said that you were going to faint, what was beginning to happen was that frontal lobe activity was starting to rapidly drop. And when that happens, you actually are losing your consciousness as you know it. Mm -hmm. You're not going to faint, but your mind is being turned off. Mm. And in your to lobes, when you start doing this rocking and chanting and swaying, it also turns off the part of your brain that gives you a sense of yourself. So your body disappears your mind is disappearing and most people will resist that so one of the most important steps i mean we take a person that we describe in our book you know five stages that you have to go through if you want to encourage an enlightenment experience mm-hmm. you have to desire enlightenment you have mm-hmm. to want it you have to have that intention you have to create an intense ritual like the one i just described Then you have to be able to surrender yourself to that ritual. And like you said, I'm about to faint, but if you keep going with it, go as far into it as you feel comfortable when you begin to feel that sense of losing yourself. Hmm. And then come back to a gentle form of meditation or breathing or relaxation. And at that point, you ask your intuition for an insight about anything. Hmm. And you just listen. And almost always you'll hear some small whisper. Something will come through. Something will tell you about a problem that you're struggling with that you've never seen before. Or maybe you'll catch a glimpse of looking at the world in a different way. Hmm. That's an aha experience. Hmm. And we've all had that. I mean, everyone who's listening, take a moment and think about a time when you were so immersed with a sunset or a sunrise that you kind of lost yourself. You became one with that sunrise or mm-hmm. an incredible loving embrace with somebody who you care so deeply for. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that sense that you were dissolving into the other person? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. The same, well, the same thing is happening in your brain. You're giving up your everyday consciousness. You're giving up all of your old belief systems, because all a belief system is is an old idea and an old thought and an old feeling. If you can suspend all of your belief systems for just a few seconds, this brings you dramatically into the present moment, and what you experience is virtually wordless. That's why enlightenment experiences are almost impossible to describe, because it's it's not connected to the language centers in our brain.
1: Mm. So I, I know both of y- both you and Andy explained in the book um, your own flashes of enlightenment. So you want to tell your story and, and maybe Andy's too about his <laughs> his total doubt <laughs> experience?
2: Well, I, I highly recommend that you read Andy's story, which is the, what we opened the book with. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, You know, because Andy was always had the basic question, how do you know what's real or not? So he was always plagued by this question, actually from the age of 10. And in his process, he found himself in what he describes as an endless sea of doubt. Mm -hmm. He was doubting everything. How do I know if anything is true? And then something remarkable happened to him. But I don't want to try to put into my words, his experience. It's hard enough to talk about these experiences from ourselves. So instead, I'll share with you an experience that had happened to me. So Andy had shared this story with me many times, and we worked together very closely on creating our books. And one day, I was watching a movie that I had seen before. It's called The Second Miracle. The first time, it was just an interesting movie, and it had You know, it had a cigarette-smoking priest. And in the Catholic tradition, when somebody is to be turned into a, uh, considered to be a saint, they hire a specific person called the devil's advocate. And that individual is supposed to run, you know, try to argue against that person as being enlightened or having some remarkable experience or whatever. At the end of this particular movie... For some reason or another, when I got up, all of my normal doubts and worries and fears and anxieties literally disappeared. I had the opposite experience from what Andy had. <laughs> Instead of being in an endless sea of doubt, which I think I live in most of my life, <laughs> I had this complete emptiness of doubt. And I, all I could say to myself is, wow, maybe this is what some people refer to as grace. Hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing about that experience. It lasted for three weeks, and wherever I went, people took a much stronger interest in me. I couldn't explain why. I started getting invited to give talks all over the place. So there was something about that experience that not only changed my mind and my awareness, it seemed to go right down to the core of my being in a way that affected other people so that 's just an example of how these spontaneous um, i 'll never call it an enlightenment experience, and neither will Andy, but they are aha experiences. The key element is that some belief system gets shattered temporarily, so for me, the belief that i 'm never certain about everything fell away, and I just mm. felt i just I just felt alive. You can see how hard it is even for me to find the right words for that. And so what our research shows is that if you have the intention to gain a profoundly deeper insight about yourself or about relationships or about the world or about the universe, there are particular steps that you can guide yourself through. And we describe each one of those steps in the book on how to suspend your belief system, how to create your own personalized ritual To help interrupt the normal functioning in your brain, all we're doing is teaching you how to dramatically increase activity in key parts of your brain and then how to dramatically let it drop. So it's kind of like running, it's kind of like being shot up into the air through a cannon and then you start falling back to earth as fast as you can. And in that experience, the way in which you normally experience the world shuts down. Mm. But you're still awake. You're still aware.
1: Yeah. You know and that's I, I, what
2: gives you that new view.
1: Yeah. So if I understand correctly, the first thing you do is you meditate or you get very calm if you're trying to to get into that state and then you do that breathing like you did with me before and then you bring yourself back down. So at first you're you're um stimulating the frontal lobes and then you want to drastically reduce the stimulation in your frontal lobes and then again you bring it back up with that some kind of a meditation or a soothing exercise is that the the steps that yes. you would take uh-huh uh-huh
2: yes you start oh. out with the intention that mm-hmm. you want to have a new insight you want to make a new discovery
1: right
2: then you prepare your mind by creating a very calm, relaxed state. And that's really important because some of these altered states can feel like a psychotic experience or a psychedelic drug. I've had that happen a couple of times and I don't really like it, even though it's still, you know, the prerequisite for having an enlightenment experience. Mm -hmm. Then... There's all kinds of different strategies that you can use. So in our book, for example, we, uh, you know, Andy interviewed and did brain scans of Brazilian mediums who were channeling the dead. Now, science can't tell you whether or not uh, you know, uh, spirits can actually talk to you or not, but we can see what activity is going on in their brain. And we find that they put themselves into this deep trance state and in that moment, they'll start to hear and feel things that are very, very unusual. So in our book, we actually teach people how to channel anybody. I like to channel Freud, for example, every now and then.
1: Oh, and I you, love
2: it. You see, it doesn't matter whether, the, you know, whether you're really, am I really channeling Freud or is it just yeah. my imagination? As far as your brain is concerned, it doesn't care. So this is the power of your imagination. I mean, one time Freud said to me, Mock why are you so? Why are you so worried about everything? Your life is doing quite good. <laughs> and I thought, wow, where did that come from? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it pointed out to me. I was constantly moving from problem to problem to problem to problem, <laughs> and never taking the time to savor those exquisitely wonderful moments that happen throughout throughout our day. Huh. And then you know, and then you know, we, you know, we also found out there's like a very gentle meditation that also turns off activity in the frontal lobe. And that's the one where you simply go Oh and you keep repeating that sound mm. over and over and over again. And I would love you and everyone who's listening to go find three or four people and do that together because the group experience is incredibly powerful. In about three or four minutes, you'll have a sense that you've disappeared. Mm. The sound, and by the way, it's the mmm sound, the vibration against mm-hmm. your lips, mm-hmm. that causes your frontal lobes to drop. The researchers, the scientists who did that experiment had people make an S sound, and nothing happened in the brain.
1: Interesting. I, you know, when I got my mantra, it isn't um, but it does have the mmm. At the end of it, which is interesting, that was my mantra, is it has that mm sound. interesting.:
2: And then we discovered something else. We brought in, uh, we brought in a, a teacher from a university who was a Muslim, and in the Islamic process, you do salat, which is that daily prayer, and you repeat mm-hmm. a fr- you know a phrase, "Bismillah, Irahman, irahim mm-hmm. and you go through all kinds you. Of, You kneel, you sit, you prostrate yourself, you stand back up, and you do this for about 15 minutes. You have to do it five times a day. So it becomes a habit. And what we find is that the moment you habituate yourself to a ritual, nothing happens in the brain. So Andy asked the person to intensify the experience to throw themselves totally into it. And you may know that from your own meditation practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you could just sit there and repeat your mantra, or you can really repeat the mantra and go into it. And then, you know, you add some kind of a movement of your body that seems to be a very Mm. important part for for triggering these big enlightened experiences. Mm. And so he did that. And again, we saw that with the intensification of the meditation, of the movements, of the sounds, frontal lobe activity again dropped. And he said that, wow, this was the most powerful experience I've had in my prayers in years. So we can make use of all of these. We can go back and forth between gentle self-reflection. And one of the things we found out is that if you don't learn how to enter these Profoundly mind-altering states, being very relaxed and calm, and then coming back to that state afterwards, that you can have a pretty rocky time at it. And you can feel disoriented sometimes for months. Mm. So that's why we, we created a program, an audio program called NeuroWisdom 101, that teaches you how to go through mindfulness, relaxation, positivity exercises. Because one of the other elements for enlightenment is that it really helps if you have a positive, open-minded, and optimistic attitude. You're going to search for the truth, but you can't be a skeptic in that moment. The skepticism will just keep your brain too busy and will stop you from surrendering yourself to an actual experience. So in combination of reading the book and all of the neuroscience research we've done to show that enlightenment is a genuine neurological process, and then engaging in these neuro-wisdom exercises, you have a great platform to go forth into the world, and you basically optimize the functioning of your brain.
1: Yeah. and Mark, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you talk about the what negative thinking versus positive thinking. Now that you've been talking about positive thinking, I think a lot of people are cynics. They think negative thoughts. They they read the newspaper. They start getting into all this negative kind of uh, you know thought processes. So just talk a little bit about how that affects your brain.
2: Negative thinking. Chronic negative thinking, and I used to be a chronic negative thinker, and I didn't even know it, but any of you who have a wife, they'll be happy to point out how <laughs> negative you actually are.
1: <laughs> yes, my husband is listening to this. Okay.
2: <laughs> and we need that. We need to be pointed out because, again, it's when we become habituated to negative thinking, we're not even experiencing how much damage it's doing to our brain. I can put you in a brain scan machine. I can flash the word no for one half a second and more stress neurochemicals are released from your brain and you don't even know that you saw the word no. So we encourage people based upon Barbara Fredrickson's research in positive psychology to create what we call a positivity ratio. And the easiest way to do this, and here's everybody's homework assignment, (laughs) I want everyone to spend... Just one hour, and if you want to, the entire day. See if you can go for one hour without a single negative thought. The average person can only go about five minutes. And it's really frustrating to discover. I mean, I rarely make it past 20 minutes. But each time you catch yourself having a negative thought, override it with five positive thoughts about anything. It doesn't even matter if you lie to yourself. This is one of the most amazing things about the human brain. Hmm. Every thought we have, that thought, that thinking process, sends connections all the way back into the emotional centers of your brain and it doesn't distinguish an inner thought from an outer reality. So if if everyone just says, oh no, I'm going to die tonight, I'm going to die tonight, I'm going to die tonight, you will feel right now in this present moment almost a sense of dread, a depression
1: right, right. Mm-hmm.
2: coming over you. Now, the reverse is done. In tr- There's so many research studies showing that you take somebody who's actually dying and you have them hold a positive glimmer. You, For example, imagine that you have light just being filled with you. Imagine that you are just entering the most beautiful state possible. And at this point, we have about a 1,000 research studies showing that those people feel better and they actually live longer. Yeah. So that's how powerful our thoughts are. A negative thought is about three times more powerful than any positive thought you have. So give yourself a challenge. See if you can go an entire day without having a negative thought. But don't beat yourself up when you fail. The purpose of the exercise is to make you aware of how negativity is constantly going on. And then you can train yourself to watch your negativity by doing the same exercise and not reacting to it. So every time you have a negative thought, you can yawn, you can stretch, you can say, oh, well, and you can turn mm-hmm. it around. My New Year's Eve resolution to me <laughs> this year was, uh, was just one word, optimism. Yep. Now, I had a t- horrendous deadline. I was late on finishing up a book I had only six weeks to finish it, Normally, I, but, I had, uh, but I had five chapters to write. Normally, it takes me a month to write a single chapter. So, of course, my habituated brain is, oh, no, this is going to be hard. I'm going to have to stay up 12 hours a day. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Well. And I said, stop.
1: Good for you.
2: I'm going <laughs> to be an optimist. And the optimistic voice said, it made me think of my agent, Jim Levine, who once told me he wrote an entire book on a weekend. And I thought, okay. Well, I just said to myself, the most absurd thought I've ever had. I'm going to try to write a chapter in three days. Why not? The moment I said that, all of my doubts and worries and anxieties fell away, and I actually felt more energy. Now, I failed in my experiment. It took me four days to write that chapter.
1: (laughs) But that's a lot better than a month, right? And we are just out of time, Mark. I can't believe it. But I think the important thing about what you're saying right now about positivity and about this wonderful book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, is that Your research showed that when people were feeling enlightened, they had more clarity, they had transformation, and they were positive. And so I just want to make sure everybody gets a chance to see this book and read it, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Thank you, Mark. It is time to go. Just give your website, and we got to run.
2: It's markrobertwaldman.com. And you'll also find information about our NeuroWisdom program there.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.